his uh, book uh, Dining with the Devil that the uh, Christian commentator Oz Guinness made uh, what for me was a disquieting suggestion when I read it some years ago. He suggests that the modern techniques of uh, management and sales and fundraising that uh, churches increasingly are aware of and using, that these techniques, good as they are, are in danger of enabling churches to function, even apparently to thrive, without any help from God at all. And uh, that thought has dogged me, it has to be said, for the last few years as I've tried to uh, lead us in what you will know is a rather stumbling and fitful way towards being a more functional and well-led family of God. And some of you will, have na- will know that it's, it, it, it's involved actually engaging with some of those, uh, the, those um, tools that are very useful. We have spent time recognising my strengths and particularly my weaknesses as a leader and then we've tried to build a leadership team, both elders and staff, around a balanced set of gifts. And I uh, think most people will agree here that the appointment of Dan has been a major positive step for us. We, we, we appointed um, Dan as uh, assistant pastor here, um, partly as a result of engaging with wisdom about the kind of person that we needed to lead the, the, this church, to help lead the church. But always at the back of my mind has been that warning from Os Guinness. I don't want Magdalen Road Church ever to get to a point where actually we feel that we can run ourselves successfully without the help of God. And um, as we rejoice in the way that God has blessed us in the last uh, few months, we must have that warning seriously in our minds. So actually, I was enormously encouraged a number of months ago um, uh, when the elders uh, met together and considered what the Lord was calling us to, uh, to do as we seek to move forward as God's people. It began in the summer retreat for elders when Daniel Blanche quoted the reformer Ulrich Zwingli, for God's sake do something brave, said uh, Zwingli, and um, uh, we resolved out of that that, that we need to uh, um, call the church to be on the stretch for God, not to settle back and relax into our life which frankly these days is reasonably comfortable as a church, but to be, to, be, to be on the stretch, to be reaching out, to be going beyond what we can do in our own strength. Actually, that applies, that should apply to each of us as individuals here. We're not called actually just to sit back and live Um, entirely within the capacity of our own resources. We are called to be people who are seeking to glorify Christ 
beyond the limit of our abilities in one sense. And for different people that may mean very different things. For a mother it could mean being gracious to her children all day, frankly. You know, for someone growing older it could be rejoicing in God all day and looking forward, learning to look forward to the greater treasure that they have. For a young man it could be doing battle with lust from the beginning of the day to the end and rejoicing at the end of the day, that God has enabled me to do something more than I could have done did I not know him. If the only things we do in our regular days is what is entirely within our capacity, well then we are practical atheists. And that applies to individuals and that applies to uh, us as a church. And so we as elders set before the church um, what it might look like, and, it, and, it, and it's tentative at the moment, how we might go the next step in fulfilling our vision statement as, uh, um, as a church. And t- twin ideas at the moment have bubbled up. The idea of, 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 of Maudlin Road Church being a hub for mission and ministry in the long term, and the other, the other idea of planting. And we call the church in the autumn to pray. And then, then another really good thing happened. Pat Brittenden um, pointed out, well, shouldn't we be praying and fasting? And I was very, very grateful for that because it immediately alerted me to something that's been happening in my life over the number of years. When I was younger, fasting was a significant discipline in my Christian life. But one way or another, it had dropped off for these, uh, the, these last few years and so it prompted me in the first place to joyfully return to um, a, a habit of reasonably regular fasting but then as we uh, as we as elders uh, talked about it together we realized that the vast majority of you have probably never had any significant teaching on the subject of fasting it doesn't seem to have been in vogue the last few years is that true? Who, who hasn't uh, heard a sermon on fasting in their Christian life? So, uh, yeah, well, we've got a significant minority and, um, uh, uh, of us here who, who, who haven't. So, we thought we rejigged the sermon series a, a little bit, shortened uh, our look at, at Joel, and the elders asked me to come and talk to you this morning, which is uh, the, the last Sunday in Lent, a traditional time when uh, Christians fast one way or another, to talk about what the Bible says about fasting. And we do need to be um, uh, um, uh, cautious um, uh, as, we, as, as we talk about that. Let me just say, for instance, that fasting um, uh, as a whole can take all sorts of different forms. It can take all sorts of different forms fasting. It, it may, um, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, it, uh, it, it, Paul talks about a, a fast from, for a married couple having sex together in order to pray. Traditionally, Lent has been a time for, for a partial fast. People give up uh, chocolate, for instance, for, for Lent. Then in the Bible, you see people giving up food completely, for, for a period, sometimes in the most extreme form, giving up food and drink. And uh, uh, some of those more extreme forms of fasting you do need to be cautious about. Um, if your health is not, uh, is not that strong, I wouldn't encourage 
a, a, a full fast, at least for any significant period. If uh, I'm not sure I would encourage anyone to fast from food and drink. That seems to be something that people are miraculously enabled to do in Scripture uh, occasionally. So, so, so we need to be cautious. But the basic principle of giving up something for God is what we are talking about. And the first question that we need to, uh, uh, need to ask is, is, a, is a pretty foundational one. Should Christians fast at all? Actually, there are a good number of good reasons why we should be cautious as we approach the subject of, uh, of fasting. Um, for instance, some people object that it is legalistic. They point out that uh, in, the, in the Gospels, for instance, it's the, uh, the legalistic Pharisees who uh, uh, fast in Luke chapter 18. It's uh, a Pharisee whom Jesus criticises who says, I fast twice a week. And fasting definitely can be legalistic. Another objection is that it's, uh, it's actually not true godliness. Indeed, it can masquerade as godliness, but be nothing of the sort. For instance, in Isaiah 58, in the Old Testament, uh, God says this, Isaiah 58, verse 6, Is it not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. In other words, go and live justly in the world. That'll do for your fasting. You don't have to get, go, go beating your breasts and uh, making yourself miserable. Well, in, and in one sense, we need to take that seriously. Fasting is no substitute for um, godliness in the rest of our lives. Fasting without godliness is hypocrisy. Third objection um, that, again, we need to take seriously is, it, is that it can, fool, it can fuel pride. Um, so, uh, Jesus said in Matthew uh, 6, chapter 16, When you fast, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, I tell you they have received their reward in full. They are looking for a reward simply from the way that people praise them. And Jesus said, okay, they get that reward, but that's all they get. They are hypocrites. They are proud. Fasting can, uh, uh, can fuel that because it looks so impressive. Another objection, uh, 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 slightly more theological in this, uh, uh, in this case, is that it is ascetic, that is, that um, uh, it, it makes Christianity into a sort of world-denying de religion in which we can start to think that all physical, bodily things are bad. We can start to think that, that, it, that it's a, um, a, a benefit in itself to deny our evil bodily appetites. And the Bible, uh, um, Bible says actually something quite different. For instance, when Jesus came... Uh, it was very clear that he introduced a much more celebratory life 
than John the Baptist had, uh, had advocated. His disciples came, uh, John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So to be around Jesus was to be people who, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Gospels, was to be people who didn't fast, but who celebrated um, in the presence of, of Jesus. And uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, later on, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, criticises people who are ordering ordinary church members around and amongst other things, they order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So Christianity is not actually, in that sense, world-denying. Christianity rejoices indeed in the good things that God gives us and provided we receive those good things with thanksgiving and we use them appropriately as God has called us to, we can live, we can live um, uh, lives that are, affirm our appetites. Food is a good thing to be celebrated, says the Bible. So we shouldn't uh, allow um, uh, our understanding of fasting to tip us over into being ascetics. People who think that it's essential to the Christian life, that we just, the more we deny our bodies, the better it is. That's not what it's all about. And a fifth objection, and possibly the most um, uh, theological of the objections, people suggest it doesn't belong to this age. It stems from... Jesus' answer to those critics in Matthew chapter 9. Remember the critics said, how come you don't fast? And um, Jesus' answer is this. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. The bridegroom, you see, is Jesus. And Jesus is saying that whilst I'm with with my people, then they must celebrate. They will not fast. He says, the time uh, will come when I am taken from them. He's talking, it seems, about the the cross when he dies and is buried, what we will be uh, remembering in just a week's time. Then they will fast, he says. That's why traditionally Christians fast in Lent, in part, leading up to that that the remembering that, that time of sadness. But of course it didn't end there. Jesus rose again. Matthew's Gospel itself will end with Jesus saying explicitly, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Christians who believe in the resurrection of Jesus and who believe that that Jesus um, is present by his spirit amongst his people, that he is with us to the very end of the age, in a sense still continue to live that celebratory life that the disciples had when Jesus was with them um, visibly. 
So, say the objectors, if Christianity is now is, is, is a resurrection faith, how can we mourn? How can we fast? Well, true as that is, to, uh, to, to a certain extent, we do have to take into account that Jesus not only rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, but he ascended into heaven and he is not now fully with us in the sense that he was when he walked the earth with his disciples. And we do long for the bridegroom to return. Indeed, Revelation 21 describes the the end of history when Jesus comes again and inaugurates the new heaven and the new earth and eliminates all evil and all sin as the return of the bridegroom finally to be married to his bride, his church. And that has not happened yet. So there is a sense in this age as believers that we live both enjoying the presence of Jesus in one sense as he promises to be with us to the very end of the age and longing for the presence of Jesus in its fullness. And as Jesus says when he is taken from them the disciples will fast. So I don't think that we can say that Christians should not fast, though we must take very seriously all of those objections. We have to as well, though, take seriously that the early church, who knew Jesus was risen from the dead, still fasted. For instance, in Acts 13 when they uh, make a big decision for the gospel, we find that they were worshipping and fasting. Christian life, then, is in one sense a feast because we enjoy the finished work of Christ on the cross. He has forgiven all of our sins and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we celebrate that. It is fundamentally a celebratory faith. Jesus inaugurated a symbolic feast as the central sacrament for our living for Christ, the Lord's Supper. And there in a symbolic way, we feast with Jesus. That is very, very important for us. But there is a subsidiary way, sense, in which it is a time of longing because Jesus hasn't yet returned. Well, that begs the question, um, what is fasting all about? And before I um, uh, justify what I've already indicated, let me just, uh, for a couple of minutes, just look at um, uh, how fasting is seen in the Bible. Let me just anticipate that by saying this is what it's in and the things it's not about. It's not an opportunity to slim. Indeed, in our slimming and body-obsessed age, it is one of the dangers because uh, people are quite attracted to fasting. A large, uh, a large amount of advertising is, um, is spent on helping people to forego food. But simple, simply slimming, you see, is doing exactly the opposite of what Christian fasting is intended to do. Simply slimming 
is an obsession with our body. That could be good to make us look better, to feel fitter and all of those kinds of things. But it's the diametric opposite of what Christian fasting is about. We are in a sense, as Christians wanting to deny our bodily appetites for a greater purpose. Not indulge our appetite to have a better body. Much as I'd love one. It's not purely about self-discipline. Self-discipline is really important in the Bible and uh, fasting will teach us a degree of self-discipline as well. But it's not only that. There's something more about fasting in Scripture and it's certainly not a way to twist God's arm. Uh, That uh, passage in Isaiah 58 uh, that we read where God says, this is the fast that I want you to have, a fast of justice was criticising the fact that the Israelites were saying, well, we're fasting, and why is God not blessing us? God says, I'm not blessing you because you're not behaving in a righteous and godly way. And fasting means nothing to me if, you're, if that more fundamental issue in your life is wrong. We cannot simply twist God's arm, though we may ask him for things in fasting. In the Bible, it, 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 um, uh, it appears in various different contexts. For instance, it was part of the routine of Israelite life. The Day of Atonement, for instance, um, was a, uh, included a fast. Now, here is actually one area, I think, which applies least of all to us. Uh, there are routine fasts mentioned in the New Testament, but they are always mentioned in the context of people being criticised. Uh, I used to uh, fast um, uh, every week when I was a younger Christian for a period until I noticed that. And I I decided that uh, perhaps actually that kind of habit was more likely to promote legalism and pride and self-righteousness than anything else. I'm not personally convinced that absolutely regular fasting is mandated in the New Testament as it was in the Old. It's often associated in the Bible with repentance. Just one example, remember Jonah preaches to the Ninevites and calls them to repent. In uh, Jonah 3 we see that that repentance is associated with fasting. Sometimes it's just associated with mourning. For instance, in 1 Samuel 31 verse 13. Um, They're mourning the death of Saul and and as a way of giving expression to that sadness, they fast. Sometimes it's seeking wisdom. I said in Acts 13, uh, for instance, in the New Testament, the church is gathering together, it's regularly worshipping and fasting and it's in that context that the Holy Spirit um, uh, uh, says to them, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've I've prepared for them. So, it's it's sometimes associated with seeking wisdom. It's sometimes associated with especially seeking God's favour. In 2 Samuel 12, for instance, verse 22, um, uh, David has sinned and he's he's, he's praying and he's fasting in part as a a, a symbolic of of his in, in repentance but he's also asking that his son, his baby son, should not die. And when it becomes clear that God will not answer that question, 
then, in fact, David immediately, to everyone's surprise, stops fasting. And he says, no, I I was asking God um, for my son's life. Now that he's answered no, then I will get on with my life. So he sought a particular response from God. I've fasted in, in, uh, in all of those different ways in my own life. I've fasted when I learned years ago that a a Christian couple that I uh, I knew had a baby with a a possible genetic condition and I I sought the Lord for it. I fasted for people who fall, for my own sin actually and for also for people in the church who've fallen into uh, uh, significant sin. Um, I've fasted when I needed to know what to do. I needed God's wisdom, what to do in a particular situation. All of those things seem to be mandated in Scripture. But is there a unifying theme that holds all of that together? I think perhaps we need to go back to that uh, passage that we've, we've, uh, we've looked at in um, Matthew 9. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. It seems to me fasting is a a physical engagement with the painful reality of God's absence and of Jesus' absence. And it is saying what I've put up on the screen there. My deepest hunger is for you. I long for you, God, more than I long for you for my physical appetites to be satisfied. And part of that may be seeking wisdom. Part of that may be seeking God's answer to prayer in a difficult situation of of sin or 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 of brokenness in some other way. Part of that may be a simple expression of mourning as we engage with the fallenness of this world. But always, always, It is saying to God, my deepest hunger is for you. I want you, Lord, more than anything else. I want you more than the next meal. Remember Jesus fasted in the desert at the beginning of his ministry and Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread. And it was in that context that Jesus affirmed before Satan himself some words in the book of Deuteronomy. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he believed that, frankly, before he went out into the desert and fasted. That was something he'd been brought up on as a child. But it was as he fasted, as he did battle in his soul with Satan's temptations, that that belief became embedded in his very heart. And Jesus himself was equipped for his ministry and knew his direction in life. He not only knew it in his head, he knew it in his heart. Man does not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You do not find that simply by intellectual meditation. You find that by living it. And one discipline that is really helpful is fasting. As we forego food, as we, as we feel hunger rising in us, we can say, I want you, Lord, more than that meal. And we can say it again and again and again. And because we are not just mental beings, because we are physical beings, the process of enacting that physically, albeit symbolically, because it's just for a period and we'll go back and we'll be perfectly well nourished. But because we enact it physically as well as mentally, God settles it deeply on our hearts. And as God purifies us, uh, 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 us in our hearts in that way, we find wisdom, we find answers to prayer, we find clarity, we find a thousand and one other things because settled deeply on our hearts is that conviction. My deepest hunger is for you. Some people think that, that this is a discipline just for superheroes. Well, let, let me remind you of what we learned in Matthew 10. Jesus said, anyone who loves Mother, father, brother, sister, child, more than me, is not worthy than me, of me. Jesus said, losing your life is finding it. Everyone who wants to follow Jesus must live that out. And it wasn't by accident that Jesus said, in Matthew 6, when you fast... He has simply assumed that a person who wanted to be his disciple, who wanted to live like that, that part of their life, part of their lifestyle, would be a certain amount of self-denial for prayer. To deepen, to strengthen, to confirm, to settle in their heart that conviction. My deepest hunger, Lord, is for you. So for us as a church, I'm absolutely delighted that our call to prayer has developed into a call to prayer and fasting. I am really praying that wisdom will come, that a new delight in God will be amongst us, a new willingness to sacrifice will bubble up amongst us. There will be new avenues of, of God-glorifying service for us. All of that and more, most fundamentally, because I'm praying that God will affirm in heart after heart after heart after heart here my deepest hunger is not for my own fame, is not for my own appetites, for not for my own fulfilment in any, any, in any narrow and short-term way. But my deepest hunger is to find satisfaction in you, Lord God, Lord Jesus Christ.
I want to finish um, this morning by um, just reading to you from some psalms. The psalms are absolutely full of expressions like uh, uh, the ones that I've described. Now, I want to read them to you, make a few comments, but I want you to have in your heart the question, do I want that? Do I want what this psalmist has? Psalm 42, for instance. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Do you have a thirst for God that is so deep your soul pants? Fast for it. Psalm 84 we read. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Do you long to be in the presence of God? More than a thousand times what you long? You're longing to be anywhere else? Fast for it. Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your glory and your power. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Do you believe? That God's love is better than life itself? Fast for it. Psalm 63 goes on. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. Which would you rather have? A feasted stomach? 
or a feasted soul. Fast for it. Let's pray.